This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this says? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls. This is Anthony. I'm in here in the studio with Skye. Hello. And we've got some good stories for you today. Yeah, we do. Per usual. Per usual. Excellent. (laughs) Well, why don't you start? Okay. Um, I'm going to start today with another uh, inmate who's kind of really close to my heart. This is sort of for a selfish reason. So the inmate we're going to talk about today is number 9721, Ernestine Wanda Paul. Now, she was not known to us. So um, as as my big project on, on doing all of our female inmates has come up, we have a spreadsheet on Excel that has that lists out all of the female inmates and then we also have catalogs that talk about all the women inmates which I think is just where that spreadsheet came from basically but it's just a a, just a reference for us now we have actually found inmates uh, before I before my time um, they found one inmate uh, our youngest inmate actually Aldwelda Reams and I'll have to do her one of these days but so we thought we only had 216 and then I was going through and I was reading, uh, I can actually, I can probably see, oh, I was looking at um, Shirley Spencer, number 9845, I was looking at her inmate file, and next to her crime, she talks about this woman named Ernie Paul, and there is a, num- a number, 9721, written in pen uh-huh. on her, on this this inmate file, and I went, that looks kind of like a, kind of like an inmate number. Yeah. And... We didn't have her listed in our in our inmate file, so I had I pulled up a large. There's a big catalog where you can look up inmates from 1948 to 19, I think 75. Mm-hmm. The all you can do is look up their name and their number. They don't have like crimes listed or anything. But this is this catalog that I pulled up, and I just did the Control F function to find 9721. And there she was, Ernestine Wanda Paul. Whoa. And I like double checked. I was like, Ernestine's a pretty feminist, feminine name, but um, but then there was Wanda as her middle name, and I was like, that can't be a man. Like it can't. Yeah. So I like walked into Anthony's office, and I was like, Hey, do you know who Ernestine Paul is? And he just sort of looked at me. He's like, No, I don't think so. And I said, Then I think I just found a new inmate, which was so exciting yeah. because again, as I've said on this podcast, there are very few things. I can do that surprise Anthony so cool. or Amber 
and I was so excited <laughs> to find her. And so she sort of, no one really knows about her. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of the only one. And I mean, yeah. other than people in her real life, but in terms <laughs> of out here at the pen, you know, I was the yeah. only one who knew. And, and so um, she has kind of a special place in my heart because of that. I was so excited to find her and to be able to tell her story because we would not have found her yeah. at all, you know, if it hadn't been for this project. So as usual, sources, her inmate file, Ancestry.com. There's only one Idaho Daily Statesman article I found, and then I used cityoflapway.com, um, nezpurse.org, and actually one other, uh, yeah, one other website, but I cite it in the, in the, the outline. So oh. we'll get into it. So, um, Ernestine Wanda Paul, um, as I said, her nickname was Ernie, um, just because Ernestine is kind of a, kind of a mouthful. So she liked to go by Ernie. She was born on September 7th, 1937 in Stites, Idaho, on the Nez Perce Native American uh, Indian Reservation. Her parents were Edward Paul Sr. and Myra Paul, again, both uh, Nez Perce Native Americans. Mm. She was the youngest of six children, four boys and two girls. She got along well, um, she, so she had one sister, basically. So she got along well with her mother and her sister, and also her second oldest brother, but um, she never got along with her father, and she felt, quote, considerable rivalry with the rest of her brothers. Um, her mother died when she was 13, and especially after that, she really didn't get along with her dad. Yeah. Yeah. So her family life is not great. At age 14, she leaves home, so it's only been probably probably less than a year after her mother's death. She leaves home, and she goes to live with her older sister, who's married at this point, in Washington State. Um, she worked waitressing jobs to make ends meet and lives with her sister. Eventually, she does move back to live with her father in, in Idaho, but she doesn't like it there because she doesn't get along with her father or her brothers, right. so she starts running away quite a bit. So in April 1953, at age 15, she is sent to the Idaho State Industrial School in St. Anthony for delinquency after she's continually running away, and she also stopped attending school. Wow. And so her, her dad didn't know what to do, so he basically called the authorities on her to come, to come get her and help curb all of that. Mm-hmm. She actually escapes from the, Saint, the industrial school four different times. Wow. But she's apprehended after only a few days each time. Jeez. Um, she, the last four months, she kind of finally gets her act together. She becomes a trustee there and, um, she is released in August, 1954. So in basically 18 months, she escapes four different times, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah. It's a, that's, yeah. it's a lot. They, they don't have the security right. that they would have, uh, yeah. And today, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, in September 1955, she's 18 years old, she marries a man named Melvin Miller. They don't have any biological children between them, but she does claim to have one adopted child. She says this adopted child is her nephew, whose name is Lonnie Spencer. This is where it gets kind of uh, interesting. So Lonnie may have been related to Shirley Spencer, who I talked about at the beginning. She was also an Esper's Native American, and she committed the crime with Ernie. But there's there's not really, as far as I could tell, because I tried to look up um, Indian census rolls in the census records and things like that. As far as I can tell, there isn't any blood relation between Spencer's and between uh, the Pauls. Mm-hmm. I did try to see maybe, the thing was is, the only reason, the only way that this little kid could have had Spencer as a last name is if it was her sister who mm-hmm. had married a Spencer, because otherwise his last name would have been Paul. Yeah. But her 
sister didn't marry a Spencer. So the only thing I can think of is, um, especially with Native Americans, their their ties, their kinship ties are much more than just blood. It yeah. could have just been they were just very, very close friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so considered them family, considered that her nephew. Um, so that's kind of why I think she says it's her nephew, because, as, again, as far as I could tell, there wasn't any blood relation in the way that Caucasians basically would, would tie that together. The marriage between Melvin and and Ernie was pretty short-lived, and uh, Melvin drank a lot. He was drunk pretty often. He, quote, threw up her past. And so what I think that means is he basically said, like, you're just a delinquent and, you know, constantly throwing her her past in her face. Mm-hmm. Um, he beat her so frequently and violently that he gave her hearing damage in her right ear. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Not good. Terrible. Oh, man. That's like brain damage. It's, that that's somebody. horrible. Yeah. Like, I... So yeah, I don't even I don't even want to think about it. So they divorce quite understandably after about 14 months of marriage. So Ernie's stay in St. Anthony didn't do a lot to straighten her out. All of this stuff is according to her FBI record in 1954. So actually uh, soon after her release from from St. Anthony, she's arrested in San Diego, California for drunkenness, disorderly conduct, health department, which we talked about before, usually is sort of a prostitution or a venereal disease charge. And then also GT, which I think probably stands for grand theft, but I'm not sure. That'd be my guess. It's got to be grand theft, but it doesn't say what it was that she stole. Then in 1956, she is arrested in Washington state for health department and twice for drunkenness. And then in 1957, she is arrested in Lewiston for drunkenness. So she clearly has problems drinking, um, which unfortunately tends to be a pattern in many of our, our Native American inmates. She's arrested in early 1957 for drunkenness. Then in June, uh, June 25th, 1957 to be exact, Ernestine is out with some friends. Her friends are Shirley Spencer, Lorraine James, Josephine Jabeth, and Pearl Chapman. And actually, um, all but Pearl end up spending time at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Some for this crime, um, some for other crimes. I was going to say, I recognize a couple of Mm -hmm. those names. Yeah. (laughs) So they're all, all five of these girls are hanging out, they're drinking, and it's like kind of the middle of the night. And they decide that they think it'd be fun to rob a cafe in oh, Lewiston. No. They get up to this cafe and they see someone there and they kind of freak out. So they decide, mm, that's a bad plan. Let's not mm-hmm. do that. So instead, they see a car and Pearl, um, who's actually the youngest, um, I want to say she's still a minor, basically, because when, mm-hmm. spoiler alert, when she's arrested, she's sent to St. Anthony rather than to prison. So Pearl gets the driver to pull over and says, hey, can you take me home? Uh, the driver's name is Horace Comstock. He's a white man. He says, yeah, sure, I'll give you a ride. And all five of them pile into the back of er, back in front of his car, I would assume. Um, they all start driving east from Lewiston toward Lapway. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of history of Lapway. Um, I've never, never really looked into it, and yeah. it's very interesting. So um, Lapway historically is connected to the Nez Perce uh, Native American tribe. The word Lapway actually comes from the Nez Perce word flap, flap, T-H-L-A-P, which describes the butterfly and the sound that its wings make. Oh. And so the area has been referred to as the Valley of the Butterflies or land or place of butterflies. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Right. 
1836, a Presbyterian minister named Reverend Henry Harmon Spaulding um, founded the Nez Perce Indian Mission in Lapway Valley. There, this becomes the state's first white settlement. It establishes the state's first school, developed the state's first irrigation system, and grew the state's first potatoes. Wow. Yeah. Lapway. Lapway. Um, Three years later, in 1839, it actually printed the Northwest's first books on the Northwest's first printing press. What? Yeah. You're did kidding. You, I did. No, that's what the, the this is from cityoflapway.com. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Lapway, you're amazing. That's I know. Really cool. Who d- we don't give Lapway enough no, credit. No, we don't. I drove through there and it was really pretty. It yeah. was a really beautiful, beautiful area. So. I know. I've never been up there. I should go. Yeah. I should go see what's going on. Up yeah, there. you should. <laughs> so um, Lapway became the part of the Nez Perce Reservation in 1855. In, in 1911, the village of Lapway is incorporated as part of the state. Basically, all that means is they do get elected officials. Um, it's not necessarily just a little village town anymore. So they're officially part of the state in 1911. Lapway is currently the seat of government for the Nez Perce Indian Nation and the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Northern Idaho Indian Agency. As of the 2010 census, there's about 1,100 uh, population wow. uh, living in Lapway right now. It'll be interesting to see what those numbers are next year when the new census comes out. So anyway, back to their crime. So they're driving toward Lapway. Four miles outside of Lewiston, Pearl speaks to Ernestine, to Ernie, in the Nez Perce language, which I so apologize. I'm going to say this wrong. I think it's Nimiputimt. N-I-M-I-P-U-U-T-I-M-T. Wow. And so that's the that's the Nez Perce language and suggests that they rob Horace. Now, here's a side note, because, again, I get pulled down a rabbit, rabbit hole. Who doesn't? <laughs> the Nez Perce Nation actually offers lessons on their native language on nimiputimt.org. So N-I-M-I-P-U-U-T-I-M-N-T.org. Wow. Um, they have, I don't know if it's videos. I didn't look that closely into it, but they actually have lesson modules on that website. So uh, if you're, yeah, if you're interested in the cultural preservation of this native language, please feel free to go check that out. That is really cool. And I know a lot of tribes are trying to do the same thing in preserving this native language that is, that is quickly getting lost in modern society. So uh, anyway, so she says in this Nez Perce language, we should rob Horace. Um, supposedly Horace had hunting knives just like sitting in his back seat, which is probably not unreasonable to think. And so Ernestine grabs one and holds it, like kind of reaches around the seat and holds it against Horace's neck and tells him, basically forces him to pull over. Wow. Supposedly Shirley and Josephine also had knives with them, but uh, Pearl did not. Okay. So Josephine takes Horace's wallet, but Horace fights back. Understandably, he's not going to let these little Native American girls get the better of him. But all the other girls, they get out of the car. They start help um, Josephine to fight against Horace. Ernestine, according to her, she, she tells all the other girls to get in the car, and she, quote, knocked him down and got into the car, presumably in the driver's seat, and she locks all the doors. So Horace tries to get back in the car. The doors are locked. The I wonder if the window was down, because it it's a June night, because she says that he, um, he swipes at Ernestine with the knife and actually <gasps> hits her cheek. Wow. She says stabs him in the cheek. That seems a bit excessive. Yeah. Um, but... Um, she says that she gets he gets her in the cheek, but they all drive off. Wow. So they drive all the way to Boise, where the car runs out of gas, <sighs> and they have to abandon the car. 
his wallet, uh, there's two different claims in this. Either way, it contained very little money. Like they pulled out the money, divided it. Ernestine claimed there's about $8. Pearl claimed there was about three. But official records claim that there was about $60. But still, that's only like $10 for each of them, which is maybe why Ernestine said, oh, we only got $8 for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So all were drunk when they committed the crime. They all admit to being intoxicated while this happened. That would help with not knowing how much money they got off with there. So Ernestine and Shirley, again, this this makes sense if that Lonnie Spencer is her nephew because they seem, Ernestine and Shirley seem to be pretty close. Mm-hmm. So um, if they're, you know, good family friends or whatever, they travel to Tacoma, Washington. I don't know how they get there. I don't know if they hitchhike, yeah. how they get there, but they get there and they hang out for a few weeks um, until on July 14th um, when they are both, they both go on a drinking binge and are arrested for drunkenness and as a fugitive from the crime that they committed on June 25th. So they are extradited to Idaho on a grand larceny charge in Nez Perce County. They plead guilty to the grand larceny charge and receives, both of them receive, quote, not less than two years, no more than 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And Ernestine uh, actually enters prison on August 23rd, 1957. Interestingly, she goes in pretty quickly, and I think think it's because she pled guilty, but surely... Um, by the time Shirley gets in there, Ernestine was already out. Oh. Um, so I don't know if sh- if Shirley had went through a long trial process. Yeah. Um, I think I said they both pled guilty, but I think just Ernestine did. Okay. So um, Herbertillion has a lot of detail. Oh, um, wow. When she comes in, she is 20 years old. Um, born in Idaho, her occupation is housewife slash waitress. Mm. She is five foot three inches tall, 134 pounds. Um, her complexion is brown. It probably says brown Indian, uh, mm. which is a common way for them to to state that. Um, her hair is black and her eyes are brown. Then um, on the the sheet that has all their scars and things, um, she's got quite a few scars. Her teeth are fair. Mm. She has a, on the inside of her right forearm is the name Dawn, but it says that it's cut into the arm. It's not oh. a tattoo. <gasps> she cut it. So that it's scarred like that. Wow. So that's like, that's dedication to Don, whoever oh, he is. Oh, jeez. Um, on, her, on her right leg, kind of right above the knee, she has a, the name Joe and apparently also a cross. Are these tattoos or cut? I think these are tattoos. These are ta- it doesn't okay. say cut in okay. um, like oh, that one does. Wow. And I then, don't know if I've ever seen that. I'd- yeah. Carved in. Carved in. Scarred it's actually, in. I can't remember if it was her. There may be someone else who did something similar where oh. she, they carve it in rather than tattoo it. Wow. Which is, oh, that would hurt so bad. That's so much blood. Love is a crazy thing. Ugh. Yeah. Don, Young love. I hope, this is a 20 year old who yeah, has these. Yeah, she's 20, 20 years old. Don and, and then Joe. Wow. Don and Joe. And then they're actually, I didn't print out the backside of her battalion, which you noticed. I literally flipped the paper over yeah. to take a look. Um, I think she had a tattoo on one of the back of her arms, but I can't, and I think it was another man's name actually, mm. um, but I can't remember what it was. So on April 25th, 1958, the Board of Corrections moves Ernestine from the penitentiary to the Ada County Jail. This is different than, um, do you remember Dorothy Cox had something yeah. similar where she yeah. was sent? I double checked. Ernestine's records because I was like maybe this is for the same thing they were in a different times though so this is I learned 
for three days before her transfer to the Ada County Jail, she had been, quote, angry, cursing, and verbally attacking all white people. So once they got her into her jail cell, she wouldn't say anything to anyone, but they said, uh, based on the way she was responding to to their questions, they knew she was understanding. She just wasn't didn't want to respond. Uh. Then a few days later, she gets talked to by the psychiatric examiner, and she realized that she had been unreasonably angry. She said this was her outburst came from a combination of being in being crowded in small quarters, mm-hmm. having no outlet for her growing tension, and for, quote, being particularly irritated by discussions on religious matters by some of the other female prisoners. <laughs> she wasn't particularly particularly religious. She identified with the Catholic Church that her father sometimes attended when she was young, but uh-huh. she also attended Methodist services with her mother as a child. So she wasn't, like, overly religious. Um, she may have been in with some other ladies who were, yeah. and she just got annoyed by it and so just sort of lost it. <sighs> Which, honestly, sometimes... I'm, I'm a religious person, and sometimes when people get in religious conversations, I'm like, I'm not doing... I'm not talking about this. <laughs> so I get it. Um, and it's also probably pretty warm... Yeah. Uh, to go in. That's in April. So it's, things are starting to warm up. Yeah. Things are crowded. It's the women's ward. Wow. Things are getting quite literally hot. Yeah. And um, there's no place to go when no. you're in those tiny no. little cells in the women's ward. Wow. And uh, so there's this growing tension and she can't do anything about it. So she starts this kind of this outburst is what what this is about. So um, the prison psychologist declares that she is not psychotic, but was, quote, emotionally immature and has inadequate defenses against her own hostilities. Mm. So um, because of this, he says she's not really a threat. She just had a little bit of an outbreak or an outburst. We all do it. And so um, she is returned to the women's ward on May 19th, 1958. So she wasn't even gone for a full month before she was returned. After her trouble, she behaves very well. Um, She's granted final discharge from the penitentiary on February 23rd, 1959. So she served, I should have put that in the outline, one year and six months. So 18 months is all she's in for. Um, Even with that that extra little outburst. So she didn't even serve her minimum sentence, which again, is pretty common for the women out here. She returned to uh, Nespers County. She's living. She lived in Spalding, Idaho. On February fourth, nineteen sixty-one, she married a man named Mark Allen. Mark was born in Lapway, and he and his family are listed on Indian census rolls as on the, in the same as Nespers uh, natives. Um, I think in the same area. So Ernestine probably grew up with him. Yeah. Um, so they probably knew each other when they were young, and uh, got together when they were older. Um, and these are the only records that I could find detailing her life after prison. It is possible that she's still alive. She'd be about 82 today. Um, so it's not unreasonable to think she might still be alive. Mm. But she didn't didn't commit any crimes after that. She seemed to sort of settle, settle down. And here's a fun fact. She is actually first cousins with another one of our female inmates, Ina Jane Paul. She's number 10233 and 108. Uh, six two zero. Their fathers were were brothers, and oh. so this is the closest relation of inmates that I could find besides sisters. Yeah. So they, I don't know if they grew up together. They probably did. Mm-hmm. Ernestine was gone before uh, Ina came in, but they were cousins. So I was kind of uh, excited to find that. Yeah. But that's all I've got. Wow. Well, that's um, a, that's a fascinating story, and yeah. I never knew so much about Lapway. So I that's know. really Isn't that cool. Fun? We so, learned yeah. so much about Idaho doing this podcast. I, I hope know. our listeners enjoy that. Yeah. It 
gives more reason when you're you know driving through little towns you're mm-hmm. like hey i know i know a little thing about glenn's ferry right or, yeah totally that's really cool yeah so that is uh ernestine wanda paul who was unknown to us i'd yeah. say before six months ago nice so good discovery thank wow. you wow great work sky thank as you. usual oh well i can't wait to hear about your inmate so who have you got If you like the podcast please consider making a donation you can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov donation.aspx be sure to click the behind gray walls podcast tab on the left side of the page any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love too Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. All right, I have uh, just a kid who thought he was a big timer. Mr. Daniel Alexander Williams, number 5495 and number 6066. This this kid was just, oh man, he he caused some big issues here. Uh, Danny was born in Eli, Nevada, on June twenty fourth, nineteen twenty. He spent much of his childhood in the Nevada Reformatory in the Idaho Industrial School. That is the place for uh, all the all the problem youths. It seems like he was, from from what I could gather, just from all the information, all the resources, it seemed like he was being raised by a single mother and. By all accounts, it seemed like she had some sort of mental mental illness of some nature. But he had been arrested several times. He was arrested in Colorado and Utah for investigations, but was never charged as a teenager. And then his first stint in the Idaho State Penitentiary came in 1937, after he's convicted of grand larceny and sentenced to 2 to 14 years in Shoshone County. Now, this was a small charge that he got for the crime that he committed. So he had stolen a car near Wallace, which we discussed on previous episodes mm-hmm. up in North Idaho, and went on this high-speed mm-hmm. chase with officers in Coeur d'Alene. And then officers actually shot the tires and sent the car into a ditch. And oh. Danny hopped out of the car and using the car as a barricade, actually opened fire on the officers. Uh, he was captured and arrested. And uh, luckily, nobody was injured or killed in this event. In January 1938, he actually applies for parole and is denied. And then a week and a half later, he attempted to escape. He and this other inmate approached the prison mail censor, the man who basically goes through every piece of mail incoming and outgoing from the prison. His name was Don Malicote. He was walking from the recreation hall to the administration building. And Danny had his hand in his jacket pocket, concealing an apparent gun. And he stated, take us to the front gate without any fuss. Open it and let us out or I'll kill you. The guard, Don, he actually, he complies. But very slowly, he's just taking these really slow measured steps, making sure to walk by the captain's office. Uh, And the yard captain, his name was Gilbert Talley. And as soon as he passes Talley's office, Malakote turns, shoves Danny through the door, and Captain Talley actually hopped to his feet and pinned Danny to the ground while Malakote pinned the other inmate. And no weapons were found on either man. And in an interview with the Idaho Statesman, Don, the mail center, said, Williams was using his index finger to pretend he had a gun in his pocket. I'm telling you, I sweat (laughs) blood for a little while. 
they've smuggled guns into better prisons than this one. And so he was, he was like, oh my gosh, of all the people who could probably do it, it would be this punk kid. Right. <laughs> yeah. Danny's tossed Crazy. into the hole for an, this, this infraction. And uh, in uh, October of the same year, he's given a conditional pardon and he's immediately rearrested for the shootout in Coeur d'Alene and sent to serve a six month jail term in the Kootenai County Jail. He's gearing okay. up for an even bigger crime. So in May of 1939, so this is basically the next summer, Danny and this fellow William Hale, who Danny's been released from that Kootenai County Jail, he actually went back to Nevada and he met up with William Hale, who's number 4749. They're both ex-convicts, they're both out on parole, they meet up in Nevada and plan to come to Idaho for some work, and that, well, at least that's what they say. So they drive up to Twin Falls and after midnight, they steal a car. The owner heard the theft and phoned the police and... These two actually drive to his service station, and Danny holds it up while Hale kept the car running outside. And Danny left with $61.32. The uh, attendant immediately reported the robbery, and officers swarmed the area, and they spotted the stolen vehicle within minutes. A chase begins, but the officer maneuvered the stolen vehicle into a curb, so just slammed into the car, ran him into the curb, and one of the officers saw Hale opening the driver door and, and shot at Hale. So Hale slumps over. Uh, he slumps over the steering wheel. Oh. Yeah. And Danny, he pulls out his gun and starts shooting at the officer. Officer Craig T. Bracken was shot and fell to the curb. Danny hops from the passenger seat and over the officer's body in a dead run. Bracken shouts, get that blank. He shot me. And uh, his partner actually turns and empties his gun in, in Danny's direction. And whoa, yeah, uh, a bullet strikes Danny in the abdomen and he dropped and screamed for help. And the officer noticed that Hale was still slumped over the steering wheel of the stolen vehicle. So he returns to Bracken, who just was shot, the officer, and loads him back into the patrol car. And Hale regains consciousness from getting shot. The, the bullet actually hit him in the head. He looks around, he sees that the other officer is picking up Bracken. And so he sees his way out. So he actually hops out of the car and s escapes on foot. Danny is picked up. He's, he's cuffed and tossed into the back of the cruiser and taken to the hospital. And officers are actually posted on all the roads for five miles around the town to prevent William Hale from escaping. At daybreak, detectives actually trace blood spots from the battleground to this nearby lumber yard and rooming house. And uh, William Hale had checked into the room and left it splattered with blood when he checked out the next oh. morning. Yeah. And he had Gosh. been walking down the highway, occasionally hiding in weeds when cars would go by, when a farmer actually spotted him and called the police. And Hale was unarmed and, and offered no resistance when he was arrested. And a search for the stolen vehicle revealed that Danny's pocketbook full of newspaper clippings describing recent holdups in Salt Lake City with handwritten pen corrections as the amount of money collected and an underlined description of the two desperate gunmen. No. Uh, the officer, Craig Bracken, was a World War I veteran and the son of a former Twin Falls mayor. So not the right person to shoot and kill. Right. And he was also the father of three. And uh, after several blood transfusions, the community tried to come together for this man. He actually passed away. And so Danny was looking at a murder in the first degree charge and life in prison. Prosecution, actually, in the trial, called for the death penalty for, for Danny and William. Danny testified that he had no 
memories from the time he and Hale robbed the service station until the moment he woke up in the hospital after getting shot. Hmm. So That's you convenient. Know, that's a classic defense. Yeah. Oh, I blacked out. Family members testified that Danny had a childhood head injury that left him mentally impaired. Hale's defense was that he was the son of a criminally degenerate father and a feeble-minded mother. The jury deliberated for eight hours to secure their guilty verdict. And once they did, they requested the lesser sentence of life in prison just because these two were so young. Mm. Uh, the judge noted that Williams was a product of a neglected childhood, and a broken home, and a mere youth of 19 years, and noted that the killing was unpremeditated and a sudden act. He sentenced the two young men to life behind bars on Dece in December 1939. The prosecuting attorney, you know how those... Those intake forms always have a note from the prosecuting attorney. Uh -huh. It said that Danny was definitely a menace to society, habitual and vicious criminal. And under the heading asking if the pardon or parole board should consider him at all uh, for a pardon or parole, the attorney wrote, you had him in the penitentiary once and turn him loose to kill one officer and try to kill another. <laughs> so Gosh. definitely, yeah, this man is too dangerous. Don't ever let him out. There's no reason to. His intake, 19 years old. He's actually six feet, five-eighths of an inch tall. So he's six feet tall, that's, almost that's six pretty one. tall. Yeah, but get this. He's 129 <gasps> pounds. He's so little. That's, so skinny. Yeah, I've, I've got like 30 pounds on him. And you are very <laughs> and tall like and very skinny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his build, he's slender. He's got black hair, brown eyes. He's a medium complexion. His occupation, he listed laborer, and his sentence was life. So Danny wouldn't stay locked up for a long time. On uh, Monday in June 1940, Danny came up with a plan for his 20th birthday. At about 10 a.m., he submerged himself in a 50-gallon barrel of swill near the back door of the dining hall. Of what? In a 50-gallon in a barrel uh, of swill. What's swill? <laughs> well... Swill, that's like old rotten food that's going to go to the, the pigs oh, out in Eagle Island. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he had cut a few feet of hose that he held just above the surface to breathe, uh, which he probably stole from the gardener or the machine shop. And the barrel was loaded on the back of the grocery truck, driven by a trustee on its way to the pigs at the Eagle Island farm. Of course, at the Sally Port, there was a guard who had an iron prod who was supposed to search every barrel, uh, because another inmate had escaped in the same method just a few years prior. But unfortunately, that guard just happened to take that day off. He neglected to prod all of the barrels. Oh, and my this gosh. And the six-foot-tall Danny Williams had uh, made it out of the prison walls. <laughs> yeah. You and when he neared the prison farm, he actually hopped out of the back of the truck and darted towards the Boise River, wearing his now-caked-and-swill prison denims. Now, the swill had dried to his clothes, leaving them stiff and cracked and with a smell any prison bloodhound could follow. Oh, <laughs> so, at count, they discover that Danny's missing, and he's considered extremely dangerous. He had murdered a police officer, mm -hmm. so officers feared that if he's out, he's going to try to steal a gun, he's going to steal a car, and he's going to make a break from the city. And so, city and state police officers, along with National Guardsmen, who were called, they set out on this hunt for this for this you know twenty year old kid, and twenty prison guards are also sent out to search for him. Uh, newspapers and radio stations alert the public about the dangerous escapee, and officers shake down houses of all his known friends living in Boise. 
They searched attics and basements for the killer, and by evening, more than 50 men were patrolling the city and surrounding roads. So, I mean, wow. word is out that this extremely dangerous 20-year-old kid is out. Officers actually call for the public to lock all of their doors, lock up all their weapons, uh, make sure everything is is taken care of. They also they called for reports on any clothing thefts, even if only some old duds that have been hanging out in the garage for several months, since he probably has already got rid of his easily identified prison clothes. A couple spotted Danny near East Jefferson Street heading towards the foothills, but he eluded capture for the entire day. Wow. Finally, 9.40 p.m. the next evening, a Boise police officer spotted Danny in the alley behind a department store in downtown Boise. He was returned to the prison, and uh, this Idaho statesman reporter actually got to sit down with Danny for an interview. And this is, his, this is his response. This is all of his words after his capture. I want you to get the whole story. You might as well sit down. But before I start, will you see that I get a look at your paper tomorrow? You know they'll put me in the dungeon down there, and I'm not sure I'll see the paper. Well, I want everybody to know I'm not a murderer and I'm not a thief. This begins back in Twin Falls in 1939. I stuck up a filling station there and made a getaway, okay? <laughs> I like that he says, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a thief. And then, and then I stuck up a, a filling station. Anyway, <laughs> so what happens next has no bearing on that. Two coppers came up to the car we was sitting in. They didn't say a word. They just opened up the door, stuck a gun about that far, he measured about, 10 inches with his hands, fisherman fashion, and said, We've got you, you dirty blanks. <laughs> I was scared and blinded by the flashlight in my eyes. The next thing I remember, I woke up in a hospital. That's why I figure I got a bum beef on this murder deal. If those cops had come up and told us they was officers, everything would have been swell. But coming in on us like they did and throwing open the door and shoving a gun under my face, I didn't know what I was doing. They sent me to the pen for life. Here's what caused the whole thing. My stomach is all upset. <laughs> So he's got an upset stomach. <laughs> well, it's probably because uh, there's nothing in it because he weighs 120 pounds. So my stomach is all upset. I can't get anything for it from my prison doctor. Everything I eat sours on my stomach and makes me sick. Oh. That's one reason I got out. I wanted to go to a doctor and get something for my stomach. And here's another reason. I've got a motor in my mind that I wanted to build. I couldn't get tools to build it in the big house. I figured if I could get out, I could build my motor. It's worth several thousand dollars. Come back to Idaho and clear my name. Yes, I could clear my name of the bum murder rap. I'm not a murderer. I just got the idea of going out in the barrels about a day or two before I went. I noticed they'd never prodded the barrels in the slop house. The night before I went out, I went into the prison lavatory. I cut off a length of hose that was hanging on the wall. It was used in cleaning the room, I guess. The next morning, just after breakfast, I stuck the hose in my shirt and went to watch for the slop wagon to come into the yard. When it came in, I followed it towards the kitchen. As it unloaded stuff for the kitchen, I went into the slop house. I found one barrel with only three or four inches of slop in the bottom. I clumb or climbed, or whatever it is, into the barrel and lifted a gunny sack full of potatoes into the barrel on top of my head. I had the hose coming up to the top. Well, you know what happened. I took and I ran. When I got near the farm, I got down into the Boise River Gulch. I crossed the river three times before I got near Airway Park. Just as I come out of the bushes, I saw two men with rifles get out of a car with an emblem on the door, and I head into the brush I just left. Boy, I got out of there. Then I came into town. I looked for clothes and coal sheds and empty buildings. I bet I walked eight miles before I found this shirt and these pants. He was wearing a black polo shirt and dark trousers. All day yesterday, Monday, 
I walked around town. I remember at exactly 1.20, I asked the service station man what time it was. I got kind of sleepy, so I lay out in the park by the Capitol and slept some of the afternoon. I, I like to imagine him like at that little park right in front of the Capitol, just sleeping right there in the middle <laughs> of town. Oh, my gosh. Later in the day, I walked around downtown, mostly on Main Street. I slipped into the basement of Potter's Drugstore at about 3.30 and stayed there until about 10 o'clock Tuesday morning. Then I walked around town for a while. I went to two shows. One of them broke my nerve. After the first show, I started out of town. I wonder I wonder what those shows were. Oh, we'll get to that. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> so after the first show, I started out of town. I thought I'd walk to Star. I went into a tavern and bought two candy bars. I've still got one of them. While I was in there, a fellow came up and started staring at me. When I went out, he followed me out and stopped me and started talking to me. I told him I had to be getting down to the house and he asked me where I lived. I told him an address where I used to live. That kind of scared me. So I ducked down into an alley and another show. The statesman reporter asked, where did you get the money, Danny? Well, I'll tell you about that money. There was a ring in the trunk in the drugstore basement. I pawned that for 80 cents. Then I went to the second show and it kind of broke my nerve. There was so much killing in it. When I got out, I was in the alley back in the store for about five minutes when they got me. Say, don't forget to give me a paper tomorrow morning. So <laughs> Danny's return to the prison that evening tossed into hard boil for 13 months. And prison officials scoffed at Danny's interview in the Statesman saying, don't think for a minute Danny is an innocent Sunday school boy he pictured himself in this story. Danny is one of the most dangerous men in the institution. He has no qualms about killing and has threatened to kill many times. I actually looked at all the films that were playing mm -hmm, that day, mm -hmm. and I think the the one that seems the most violent, well, the only one that seemed violent was Drums Along the Mohawk. Have you ever seen that? Uh-uh. Who's in that? What year is it, What year was that? 39? This is from, yeah, 39. It stars uh, got... Henry Fonda, Jane Fonda's father, right. and Claudette Colbert. Oh, I, I've heard of it. I've never seen it, though. It's a film adaptation of a novel by the same name by Walter Edmonds, and it's basically about these two uh, wealthy upper-class New Yorkers who, during colonial days, moved to the New York frontier in 1776. And this raiding party of Seneca, Iroquois, are observed, like, approaching along with British soldiers. So all the farmers in this little frontier, they actually flee to Fort Schuyler. So several battles and, like, raids occur. There are a bunch of shootouts in it between... Um, these American colonialists and the British and Native American troops, and they burn a bunch of farms, and they kill about half of the militia, and Claudette Colbert actually has, like, a miscarriage, and, yeah, it, was, it seems kind of intense. I could uh, see how maybe someone, <laughs> someone, not somebody who's actually committed a murder and in prison for murder could be upset by all that, mm -hmm. but maybe he was having some... PTSD. He was reliving some of his own right. experiences seeing that stuff happen. But I wonder too, though, is sometimes there are like the 30s had a lot of mob movies, like gangster movies, and those mm -hmm. tended to have a lot of killing as well. So I wonder if he saw any of those maybe as well. This this is the only one that I like watched trailers of and saw like shootouts were a major part of it. I didn't I didn't see any mob movies. So or so when you on, say but... that you like looked up what was playing like what do you you like went through newspapers to find like yeah oh, okay yeah i looked at the idaho statesman for okay. those days what what was listed in theaters okay. that week interesting so yeah wow. yeah drums along the mohawk uh i kind of want to watch it. it sounds pretty interesting actually 
Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure where to find it. Maybe the library has it. Everyone support your local library. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, so September 1941, Danny appealed to the board for uh, a hearing to clear William Hale's name, and he insisted that Hale had played an unwitting part in the shooting. The board actually refuses to free William Hale, and Danny's caught gambling and is locked up again in hard boil for two months between October and December. Within a week of being released from hard boil, he's sent to Siberia for 20 days for threatening other inmates. In February 1942, Danny applies for the pardon to join the army, and he wrote, I do not want to die in here a no-good, worthless convict when I have the facilities to do something for the country and our democracy. The board denies his application. <laughs> January 1943, members of the House of Representatives here in Idaho were touring the site, learning how the prison worked. Meanwhile, 60-year-old prison guard named Harry Powers was opening Danny's cell door in the 1890 cell house to give him some medicine. Danny and his cellmate Ed Smith grabbed the guard by his arms, pulled out his pocket knife, and stuck it to his neck. They forced Powers, the, the guard, to march outside to Number 4 Tower near the Rose Garden. They threatened the guard in the tower that they would cut Powers' throat if he didn't throw his gun down into the yard. The tower guard refused, and Danny forced Powers to the dining hall, where another guard stopped them with a tear gas gun. Danny demanded that he drop his weapon, so the guard did, and he kind of handed it. He tucked it around the corner to another officer that was just out of sight of Danny. That guard then ran out. He retreated around the corner and alerted other staff who rushed the Rose Garden. Danny realized he was surrounded, and he gave up. The two were sent to Siberia, and the representatives had no idea any, th any of this was going on in the yard no <laughs> until way. the next morning when they were reading the papers. Yeah, and they were like, wait, what happened while we were just wandering around? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Powers actually did have his throat cut uh, just a little bit to the right side of his neck uh, next to his chin, an inch lower, and it may have killed him. Oh. Uh, Danny was removed from Siberia nine months later. So he spent nine oh. months in Siberia in October of 1943. And Danny was actually brought from Siberia and put back in the 1890 cell house and put in hard boil and lockdown. And then he actually requested to be returned to Siberia for a month, which he was between October and huh. November of 1943. And then he's brought out of Siberia. He decides that he's going to change his ways, so they actually give him his first job at the prison. He is given the job in the prison laundry in January of 1944. The next month, he's removed from work and locked up in a cell by order of the warden, and the punishment would span from February 1944 until November 1952. I'm so sorry, what? Yes. So they did not trust him, and he was just too dangerous to be involved in anything. So the warden was just like, you know, we can't have this guy in here. He's talking back to guards. He's talking about killing people. He's threatened people. He's escaped several times. Giving him a job is just a ticking time bomb for him to cause another uh, issue at this institution. And so literally he's locked in his cell for all of this time. So July of 1944, Danny, again, he applies for parole. And this again is denied, but it opened the door for him to visit St. Luke's Hospital in October to have his brain examined. And oh. he was suffering from these really severe migraines, these terrible headaches. The uh, attorney general actually suggested a ball and chain on, on Danny to prevent an escape while he was at the hospital. But I couldn't find exactly if, if that happened or not. That was just in the newspaper. And he was given an x-ray exam. 
but nothing turned up. Nothing abnormal seemed to be going on in his brain from what they could see at that point. Well, an x-ray is very different than the technology that we have now to exactly, like actually yeah, scan the brain. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah uh, there's no bone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... In November of 1944, Danny's returned from the hospital back to the 1890 cell house, and using a sharpened piece of tin, he actually attempts suicide by slashing his wrist. Guards grab him and escort him to the hospital. He breaks free. He climbs to the top of the cell block and jumps headfirst into the concrete floor below, just like Douglas Van Vlack had done in 1937. So interesting to note. Van Vlack was serving for a similar crime, oh. killing a state patrolman. And we'll get to Douglas Van Vlack at some point soon. But uh, Danny Williams, actually, he's in critical condition, but he survives it. He's sent to St. Luke's and returns two and a half weeks later. He suffers from a broken back and shoulder and several deep scalp wounds. Oof. Yeah. Yikes. When he regained consciousness at St. Luke's, he told investigators that he made the attempt because there was no future for him at the prison. He applies for pardon twice in 1945, but is denied without further discussion by the prison board both times. And in 1946, Hale's sentence is commuted to 25 years, and he's released on parole in 1948, serving eight years at the penitentiary, leaving Danny still at the institution. Um, In the summer of 1949, Danny insists his own innocence. You know, Hale has been released. Now he's like, I'm innocent. In an interview with the Idaho Statesman, Danny claims that pressure on his brain caused his escapades in the prison and caused him extreme fear. That's what he said. It caused him extreme fear having this uh, pressure on his brain. And he he pleads to the parole board and to the warden, to anybody who will listen, for a lie detector test and because uh, he thinks that it'll clear his name. In letters to the parole board, he also asks for truth serum for sodium pentothal, uh, or even just a hypnotist to come out to pull the truth out of him. He insists that the officer was shot not by his gun, but by another officer during the gun battle. And he claimed his weapon, an old-type nickel-plated thirty-eight caliber revolver, had a cylinder that wouldn't turn and a hammer that couldn't be pulled back. Williams' attorney told him not to discuss the gun during the trial because the jury will think you know too much about guns. Danny insisted that the bullet that killed Brecken came through the left rear window of the car, and Danny was not given another trial as officers referred to Bracken's dying words, Get that blank! He shot me! In November 1949, Danny wrote a 93-page handwritten, beautifully handwritten cursive letter to the pardon board. And the members saw it as a work written by an insane man. And Danny later wrote the board a year later and said, I now feel that I could not have made a worse mistake, but then defends the tome, I'm going to call it a tome, by saying that his mother actually took the 93-page letter to a psychiatrist to have it analyzed at his request. And they reported that it's sane, he, he wrote. This work has been described as some of the best of its kind, which has ever been written. Oh, boy. Yeah, and I actually started transcribing it. I've gotten about 15 pages in. Whoa. Jeez. Yes. I mean, I this is kind of around the same time that Benzedrine inhalers were, were in the institution, which was like essentially speed that people could get. Oh, it gosh. was these, these little inhalers, and, and the, the, the convicts here would actually pull the little 
pads soaked with this benzedrine chemical and they would chew on it oh. or they could cut it into little pieces. They could smoke it. They could boil it off and inject it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, oof. reading this this 93-page thing, it's I, I felt like I was going a little bit crazy going through it. And, and the biggest takeaway huh. from it is that he says that Warden Lou Clapp is being hypnotized by the captain of the guards, Patrick O'Neill. And Pat O'Neill hated Danny Williams because, well, Danny's a dangerous individual. He had nearly killed one of his his friends, Harry Powers, earlier. And any time that Danny asked or requested anything, Pat, if he was there, would say, nope, not allowed. Danny talked about his stomach aches. And he goes to the prison physician, Dr. Walls. And Dr. Walls is like, yeah, I'll, I'll get you a better diet, something that'll fit you better. And gives Danny a couple oranges and says, you know, this will this will help you uh, with your, your stomach acid and all this stuff. And so Danny's eating oranges and the prison physician says he's going to order all this specialized food for him. And then the prison physician actually had to speak to the yard captain, to Pat O'Neill, and all of this got canceled. And Danny was so upset that he didn't get his special diet. Like every everything that Danny requests gets thwarted by Pat O'Neill. So he just feels like a victim of the yard captain. It's really crazy. I I don't know if I could finish transcribing it just because it's driving me crazy reading well, it and so yeah. it sounds it sounds like basically it's it's his like fever dream yeah like some sort of like trip basically and him just like writing it down that's yeah yeah and okay and he crazy. says that it wasn't a suicide attempt that he slipped he he tripped three tears from 1890 cell house it wasn't a suicide attempt but you know he had also cut his wrists and it i don't know it's very well, that was probably an accident, too. Right, yeah. That happens. And I think, I mean, just hearing his description to the Idaho statesman about his escape attempt, you know, he, he never accepts responsibility for anything. Everything is always somebody else's fault, and everything, you know, it's not me, it's because I have a stomachache, and, you know, all this different stuff. It's, oh, man. <laughs> Finally, Danny actually gets a job in the 1950s. Between 1952 and 1954, he works as the chaplain's assistant, which is just crazy to me. <laughs> uh, he's transferred mm -hmm. to the electrical department in June of 1954, and then he's transferred to the state hospital in 1956, where he resided for nine months. While serving there in Blackfoot, he took an electrical exam and got a better-than-average score and was given a certificate of competency as an electrical journeyman. He's returned to the prison in November and applies for a parole, which was finally granted in January of 1957. Hmm. And there he moves to Lovelock, Nevada. And by November, he was rearrested as a parole violator and returned to the prison. Nice. Yes. Classic. Yeah. And he's charged with assault after he attacked a man that was in his apartment. So the sheriff of Lovelock actually wrote to the warden saying, surely a man has a right to protect his guests in his home. I became fairly well acquainted with Mr. Williams, the short time I spent in Lovelock, and he was doing very well in the radio and television business. However, we have people in this world that don't believe in letting a man forget he is an ex-con. I, in return, don't believe this man deserves to do a five-year stretch for protecting his home. In 1959, he was again sent to the state hospital where he remained for a month for mental evaluation. Upon his return to the prison, he applied for a parole and was granted again 
that May, in, in May of 59. In June of 1960, Danny was given a conditional discharge. A letter arrived to the warden from Miss Sharon Lee Vierell uh, from Minden, Nevada, on December of 1960, in which Sharon wrote, Isn't it true that a person on a parole is not supposed to have a firearms? I know as a fact that my stepfather, Danny Williams, has two pistols. Mr. Williams was charged with assault and battery after breaking my mother's nose and was released after he paid his bail, which was $100. The local authorities don't seem to be doing very much about this matter. I would like to see something done about it. Oh, uh, I like it. Right? Yeah. Like, this girl, like, standing up for her family and being like, this guy's a jerk. Like, no one's doing anything about it. Good for her. Yeah, but it doesn't appear to have done anything. I, I couldn't find anything wow. more on Danny other than his final discharge from parole four years later in June of 1964. And then wow. from there, what happened to Danny's life, I do not know. I, I did mm. find that he died on April 12th, 1979, but uh, in, in Kern. But uh, other than that, the rest of his life is a mystery. And I can only hope that uh, he, you know, what, how old is that? 59 years old. And all the things that he did, all the chaos that he caused and mayhem and ugh, the injury, all the victims that he left behind for all the robberies he committed. And oh, mm -hmm. man, I, I think overall this this is one of our one of our bad guys that. Yeah, it's I'm just surprised that he didn't spend his entire life there. And I think he did have mental issues. How long did you so from his first arrest until his parole? How many years is that? So that's from thirty-seven to nineteen sixty-four. That he is like yeah, the system. Yeah, so thirty-seven to sixty-four. So almost thirty years. years. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, granted, he was in for life, and frankly, he deserved it, and maybe he should have stayed in for longer, but. It's so interesting how little time people spend in prison for terrible things that they do. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit more lax back then than it is now, but even then, sometimes people just don't get punished for the things that they do. Right. So I have two comments about what I've heard. First, he I wonder what sort of like condition that he had for his stomach. Because it sounds like he probably did maybe have like a uh, maybe an autoimmune disease or or some sort of like actual real stomach affliction that like maybe just wasn't well known then. Yeah, yeah. Which that is sad. Like that, I my best friend has Crohn's disease, and I know how how hard that has been on her and how much it hurts, and and so I I just would imagine that would be really really tough to deal with. But still doesn't, it's not like it's an excuse for what he did. Right, yeah. Uh, but then my second comment is his escape story reminds me a lot of the movie Annie from the 80s when she tries to escape from the orphanage by getting into the laundry basket. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I get that. I watched that movie so much when I was a kid that when I found it was on Netflix a couple months ago, I watched it and I could quote the entire film word for word. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so everything's fine. Right, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I just, that's sort of what I was thinking of where she like hides in the laundry and 
like she's getting snuck out and the Carol Burnett plays Miss Hannigan, who's like the orphanage. I don't know what you would call it, but she basically like runs the orphanage and they should like go to put the basket in the back of the truck. And they're like, man, this is heavier than normal. She's like, oh, really? It shouldn't be. And she basically wants Annie like is sort of in cahoots with the the laundry guy because when she when they get to a next stop, he like pulls her out and she tries to escape but then gets caught by a police officer. So sort of similar, except that there's a lot less at stake. <laughs> and also she just didn't do anything wrong. She just was an orphan. Yeah. Anyway, that's my diatribe into Annie from the eighties. <laughs> Annie and Danny. Yeah. I, I like <laughs> it's one of my favorite escape stories to tell, just with the Sally Port right there, you know, if uh-huh. people just like that. And it's just a visual thing you can imagine it happening. Well and he's lucky. Right, yeah. The amount of luck that it took that the guard was just like, oh, no one's ever in here, so I'm not going to check yeah, it today. Yeah, I always say it was the best birthday he ever had, his 20th birthday, you know, escaping and <laughs> sleeping in the park in front of the Capitol building and having the candy bars. But then the movie's too violent, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, but he saw another one, too, that he must not have been too bothered by. Yeah, yeah. I th- there, was a, there were a couple of romance kind of ones that... Well, those are my favorites. (laughs) Also, 39 is the best year for film. So there was some good stuff. Really? Depending on... Oh, yeah. Because it it sort of depends on the time of year because most of the really, really good ones came out at the end. So like, I think The Wizard of Oz was in like August. Gone with the Wind came out in December. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington came out that year. I'm not sure when. And then there's lots of like kind of smaller ones. But yeah, like there's a whole laundry list of like cla- like films. When you think of like old movies, you think of like a ton that came out in '39. Like it was a good, good yeah. year. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So I, I wonder which other one he saw. I'll I'll try and put that in our Facebook group. I'll try to put up all the movies that were playing that day in Boise. And, and I will I will probably be like, oh, I've seen like yeah. Half of those oh, I own all of these except for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, except for the Mohawk yeah. one. Yeah, drums but, along the Mohawk well, in Technicolor. I I love that. I've got the movie te- poster. Right it here. was in Technicolor. In Technicolor oh, yeah. did that happen later, or was Technicolor a normal thing then? No, it was sort of starting to become more in vogue because um, you have Gone with the Wind in Technicolor, and then you also have The Wizard of Oz, who starts in sepia and then goes into Technicolor. So it definitely was becoming a lot more popular oh. um the 40s we see it less because of the war and they don't have the money uh and resources to expend in doing that and then we start to see it in the late 40s a lot oh, more gotcha. um but it was sort of like a novelty in uh in 39 and so they probably were taking advantage of that plus if it's it's this like big historical epic then it makes sense that they would try to film it in technicolor yeah nice so that is your film history corner for the day. I love it. That's great. <laughs> Yay. All right, Sky. Okay, well, um, what a story, Anthony. Excellent research as usual. Well, thanks, Guy. Thank you, everybody, for listening yeah. and tuning in, and we'll see uh-huh. you all next week. Yeah, so do your own time. Do your own number. Have a good week, everybody. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.